Uh, a very warm welcome to the October Editor's Choice podcast. I'm Amy Ross Russell. I'm a neurology trainee in Southampton in Wessex. And I'm joined today by Dr. John Walters, who's a consultant neurologist in Swansea. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for asking me. We're going to talk through just some of the highlights from John's fantastic review of how to approach weakness in the intensive care unit. These are really tricky assessments and it can be a really hard uh, story uh, to get, a hard examination to organise in your mind. So it's a really, really useful and, and necessary article. It's also a, a real tour de force. It's jam-packed uh, with useful information. There's fantastic tables for reference and it's overflowing with wisdom. So I, th- I think it's my meatiest one yet and I, and I think we're not going to cover uh, the whole thing today. So listeners, do follow the link to download the paper to appreciate the full masterpiece and, and to have it for reference uh, when you get your next tricky patient. Just before we start, uh, a reminder, you can hear Garrett Fuller and Phil Smith, the Practical Neurology Editors, discussing the latest edition in the Editors Highlights podcast. And you can subscribe or listen back to previous podcasts just by searching Practical Neurology Podcasts or PN Podcasts via any podcast platform. I thought we might start just with what we can offer to ITU, John. How does our assessment help our colleagues and their patients? And what difference does, does our input really make? Well, I think it's common to be asked to see patients in ITU. Um, Most of us work in DGHs. And I think the first thing to say is that we're often involved in the decision about pre-admission to intensive care. You know, does this patient require an admission? And that's with our ICU colleagues. And the sorts of questions we're addressing there are usually with primarily neurological problems like assessing respiratory muscle strength or refrangeal strength, sometimes with sepsis if with an underlying neurological problem or trying to assess, um, you know, why someone might be have a reduced level of consciousness um, and whether they need to be admitted to intensive care. Once someone's in intensive care, the common things that we're asked are what's the cause of this patient's coma and what's the prognosis? And then about a third of people in intensive care will have some neurological problem, neurological complication. And that might include a depressed level of consciousness, which remains unexplained and which the neurologist can help with uh, finding out the answer to. Or really quite commonly, um, this peculiar weakness that develops during intensive care stay, uh, which is a neuropathy or a myopathy or a combination of the two. Um, and the patient de- develops quite debilitating weakness, which affects respiratory muscle strength. And therefore, um, the patient is having problems, uh, for example, weaning off the ventilator. So those are the sort of common things that pre and during ICU care that we're going to be involved with. And I think it's worth always stressing, you know, what are our strengths as neurologists and not to be dazzled by, you know, the Pandora box of terminology on ICU uh, or distracted by, you know, the machines and so on. The the strengths that we've got are history taking and examination. And so although the voice of the patient's not heard, we can talk to the family, we can review clinical notes, we can speak to colleagues on intensive care, nursing colleagues and so on, to try and establish the story carefully and accurately in our own mind and then 
perhaps do a focused examination and try and address some of those uh, questions that we're, it's, it's not unusually to be asked about. That's fantastic. That's really great. And, and I think that structures sort of the main points for a podcast really nicely as well. So let, let's take those one by one, shall we? So if we're thinking about getting into ITU and you mentioned particularly respiratory weakness as being the main criteria that people need support from ITU, what do you find the most useful parameters for assessing respiratory function? Um, and when, when do you think they need to be, we need to be thinking about support? Well, I think there are two situations. I think the, the first is the patient that you can see um, yourself it, it, on a ward. And just asking the patient whether they feel breathless is a very useful starting point. They might sort of say, look at you with a relieved expression, say yes. You know, so the, I think just asking that basic question, do you feel short of breath, is is very helpful. And then people with respiratory muscle weakness tend to have quite a, a shout. They're not breathing deeply. They've got quite a, a small tidal volume. So they're breathing rapidly and their their breathing is shallow. So counting the respiratory rate is helpful. And patients who are struggling and short of breath with respiratory muscle weakness will often be tachycardic. They'll often have a sweaty brow. They'll, uh, although they can look strangely um, comfortable at rest, uh, unless you specifically look for those things. And then, when the diaphragm is failing, we tend to use these accessory muscles to help respiration. So those are the sternocleidomastoid muscles uh, that contract, and you can see those contracting when patients are breathing in or flaring the nostrils, and they, those sorts of clues are important. And I think listening to someone speak, is their voice very broken up, so-called staccato speech, that's important. And as a rough a rough guide, uh, it's very helpful to do a counting aloud test with the patient. So we normally talk at about 100 to 120 words a minute. And what we're doing when we're counting aloud, we're asking the patient to take a deeper breath as possible, count out aloud, and the number that they reach is a kind of um, ballpark figure for their vital capacity. And lots of neurologists would say that the number you reach you could times by 100 and that's roughly equivalent to your vital capacity so if you reach 20 in one breath counting at two per second then that's roughly about one and a half to two liters uh, which is a kind of a safe threshold i tend to count aloud with the patient it's amazing how difficult it is for people to coordinate counting aloud in that fashion so you know th those are the sort of clinical things that i look at I'll be much less interested in the, I mean, be interested, but much less interested early on in the saturation. The saturations tend to be, you know, reassuringly normal uh, until quite late. And the peak flow meter, which is always so useful for asthma assessment, is not terribly helpful for respiratory muscle strength assessment. Patients, uh, it's a kind of indirect measure of the diameter of airway in the lung rather than respiratory muscle uh, assessment. Those are the things that I'm doing when I'm sort of faced with a patient. I think on the telephone, when you're taking a phone call from an outside hospital, you, you know, it's very easy to be lulled into a false sense of security. The saturations are normal and the patient looks comfortable. 
So it's really worth trying to ask, you know, well, what's the pulse? What's the respiratory rate? Could you possibly do a counting aloud test to try and get some idea of the vital capacity? So I, th I think there's a particular pitfall with a telephone call. Uh, so you need to try and get that information from the referrer. That's really fantastic. That's wonderfully helpful advice. And and what about neck flexion and sort of on examination findings? Is there anything there? Yeah, neck flexion is, you're, you're right. When the polio epidemic happened, there was this sort of appreciation of a correlation between the the strength of neck flexion and the diaphragm strength. They're sort of derived from the same sort of myotomal uh, in, you know, distribution. And neck flexion is a, is a good, helpful marker for uh, potential diaphragm weakness. I think in terms of um, one of the, the the clues really to to the cause of a respiratory muscle weakness can be to think about the correlation between the respiratory muscle strength and the strength in the limbs. So in acute neuropathies, particularly Guillain-Barre, the, the, those two things are correlated. By the time you've got a significant respiratory muscle weakness, you know, you shouldn't be able to lift your arms up against gravity, for example. They, those two things go together. Whereas in conditions of the neuromuscular junction, particularly myasthenia or more rarely botulism and so on, in those conditions, the weakness can be very focal so that you might have a very significant respiratory muscle weakness, but relatively well-preserved muscle strength in the limbs. So, so there are some clues there as to potential you know, culprits in terms of what's causing the respiratory weakness. That's fantastic. That's great. Let's let's imagine we're on call as the perhaps the liaison consultant or the registrar on call, and we get a call from ITU about someone who's already there with with weakness. Where do you start with with that referral? What things are going through your mind to organise your thoughts, and what are the important questions that we should be asking? Yeah, it's it's challenging, isn't it? This this kind of assessment, but I think it does go back to the history, and it's trying to ascertain both from the from the notes and also discussion with a family, when did the weakness begin? Is this weakness more longstanding? Um, so for instance, has the patient been worried about exertional dyspnea or problems with their swallowing? Have they changed their diet? Have they lost weight? Do they tend to be very sleepy through the day? So when, for example, we have someone with longer standing diaphragm weakness, as you go into REM sleep, particularly your you know, you're relying completely on your diaphragm to, to breathe in and out. So you tend to decompensate then and your sleep becomes disrupted and you tend to not overtly wake up, but you're tending to be aroused through the night. And then the next morning, you've got a sort of groggy, headachey, sleepy person. And family will have noticed a change in that, in that respect. So, it, you know, those are clues for potentially a much more longer standing problem that's kind of decompensated. And similarly on the ward, you know, if it's a more of an acute, abrupt onset, there's not a history of a longer standing problem, then it's important to decide, you know, did this patient go to intensive care after a few days in the hospital because they become acutely weak? And those are the sorts of situations where we're thinking Guillain-Barre myasthenia uh, or an electrolyte disorder. And that, that, that group are different from the group in intensive care 
who have gone into intensive care because of a peritonitis or pancreatitis, something non-neurological often, and who have become weak when they're there. So the weakness might have happened, you know, within a week to 10 days of them arriving in intensive care. Commonly, as I say, it's some problem with weaning the patient. And in that situation, I think the commonest cause would be the so-called IC acquired weakness, or some people might call it critical illness neuromyopathy. Uh, and that's a really common condition. It's a common cause of respiratory muscle weakness once you're on intensive care. It's not there before you get to ICU. It's something that de develops when you're in ICU. And as well as that, I think you you just sort of think, well, you know, could this be some sort of stroke that's occurred on ICU? That's not an uncommon problem. One to four percent of people on ICU develop a stroke for who not don't have a neurological primary neurological reason for being on ICU. Um, and then things like you know, if they've had a sort of electrolyte problem, central pontine myelinolysis, for example. But ICU would be ICU acquired weakness would be the big one there. So I think we're thinking about the history, the timing of the weakness. And then I have to confess that I take a step back at that point and say, could this possibly be a spinal cord problem? Because it's so easy to overlook a spinal cord pathology. And spinal cord pathology can occur in ICU for any number of reasons. If someone's septic, they might have developed an epidural abscess, a spinal epidural abscess. They might have had a meningitis and developed an anterior spinal artery stroke because the anterior spinal artery is sort of bathed in this inflammatory process, uh, you know, in the CSF. Uh, so, so I tend to tend to really ask that question, and it's a messy business because patients might have more than one pathology, and that that's an unsatisfactory thing to say, but nonetheless is important. So. You know, geriatricians are used to looking for more than one diagnosis. And perhaps really we should adopt that uh, way of looking at these problems on intensive care, just, just as a geriatrician would in any patient. So, um, yes, they might have an ICU acquired weakness, but do they have any subtle upper motor neuron signs? Uh, are their legs weaker than their arms? Could there be something additionally going on so it's it's a bit messy but that's one sort of frame that i tend to use to try and address the the sorts of questions um, which might lead to the answer that's wonderful i mean you've covered so much in that answer and i really love that that you actually you focus in on what we can offer as neurologists and what our strengths are with history examination and, and i think i'd add localization to that as well i think from what you've said, you'd agree that localising the pathology is really the key first step when we're approaching a diagnosis. It is. You know, if you think about your your own intensive care, on the one hand, you're in a very, a very safe, secure environment, supported wonderfully by machines and medications and so on. But it is a two-edged sword. You know, if you're on intensive care, in some ways, it's the very worst place to be, you know, Medicine's always talked about the evils of bed rest and that there's no, you know, obviously intensive care. You, you don't want to be lying on a bed for any longer than you need to be. And there's problems with ventilator complications. And, you know, we lose skeletal muscle mass at over 1% a day on the ICU. So you tend to get this awful um, situation where on the one hand, you're being kept alive and it's amazing what, what can be done 
But on the other hand, the downside of that is all the complications that arrive from bed rest and from uh, being on a ventilator. And without a diagnosis, you're not going to get out of ICU. You know, to be able to distinguish a, a myasthenia from a basilar artery stroke, the treatment is quite significantly different. And you're not going to get out of that situation until you've made the diagnosis. And, you know, the diagnosis essentially precedes the treatment. And without treating the patient, there's little chance of them getting out of this uh, environment, which is so bad for them in some ways. So, yes, absolutely. Localization is yeah. crucial. You've mentioned sort of things that you think about diagnostically. What are the key components to your examination when you go see someone that you think should always be part of an examination in, in intensive care that, that we might not necessarily think about immediately? I think it's, I mean, some of these things we, we probably do anyway, but the sensory examination is very challenging in intensive care. The patient's often uh, slightly muddled, slightly confused, but it, it is important to try to do a sensory examination particularly looking for, you know, thing like a sensory level, which will point to a spinal cord problem. I think it's worth really looking, as we often do at, you know, the cranial nerves, lots of reasons why people might have an ophthalmoplegia, from myasthenia to a basilar stroke, uh, and occasionally, of course, Guillain-Barre. But one question we can ask, you know, is, is this ophthalmoplegia symmetrical or asymmetrical? If it's very asymmetrical and it's it looks like an internuclear ophthalmoplegia or a gaze palsy, then that's clearly going to point you to a basilar, uh, you know, a pontine uh, pathology. Whereas with Guillain-Barre, if, if, if there is an ophthalmoplegia, it tends to be a little bit more symmetrical. And fatigability is really important, looking at ophthalmoplegia and limb weakness in terms of myasthenia. And there are some sort of neat little tricks the so-called Kogan's lid twitch sign or eyelid hopping sign, lid hopping sign, uh, where you're essentially looking at fatigability. So you might ask the patient to look up and they their ptosis becomes worse. Or you might ask the patient to look down. And when they look back to the primary position, their lids kind of shoot up and then go back to resting position briefly, little sort of jump. And that's that's Kogan's lid twitch. If you ask a patient to try and saccade, their lids will kind of retract momentarily as their eyes start to move. So those are features often of a myasthenic problem. I think it's really worth thinking about jaw strength because if the jaw is weak, then it's very likely, I think, to be myasthenia. The jaw strength is, is usually preserved in Guillain-Barre. Um, and then in terms of limb you know, the limb weakness, it's worthwhile stepping back at the end of examination of the limbs and saying, is this weakness symmetrical and uniform or is this weakness asymmetrical? And obviously, you know, is there an upper motor neuron component uh, and what do the planters and all of that sort of thing do? And if it's if it's very asymmetric and the patient's clearly got a hemiparesis and some signs on the other side, then you're thinking more pontine perhaps myasthenia if it's lower motor neurone, whereas Guillain-Barre and electrolyte disorders, particularly hypokalemia, kind of cause a uniform flaccid weakness and areflexia. It's worth looking for fatigability if you can in the patient's cooperative in IT, ICU in terms of repetitively 
asking the patient to um, elevate an arm or a leg. But that's sometimes very difficult. And I think although it's really worthwhile looking at reflexes and plantar responses, they're sometimes disguised by comorbid problems. Um, they're sometimes not evolved. They're not mature enough to show themselves fully. So we have to be a little bit circumspect uh, about how we interpret that. And it's certainly worth looking at aut dysautonomia. You know, if if the blood pressure and the pulse are very erratic, then that would certainly fit with Guillain-Barre. If the patient has unreactive or poorly reactive pupils and a dry mouth and otherwise looks like myasthenia, then you've got to think of botulism. And I think I, I've not seen this myself, but someone with a myelopathy who's one way that they can show present is with a patient who's quite hypotensive and bradycardic and sometimes hypothermic. So those are the other sort of dysautonomic features perhaps to to be aware of. And I think the other thing is as neurologists, we're good at looking at the whole, you know, the whole patient, but it's worth looking at the skin. You know, is there evidence of emboli to the skin suggesting endocarditis or a rash that's so easy to overlook and it's shingles and that's the myelitis and you know all of those sorts of uh, it's worth really looking at, at the patient I think the skin is often overlooked because patients have often had scans of their chest and abdomen and so on but the skin is potentially something that is, can provide a friendly kind of pointer to the diagnosis so it's something worth specifically looking at i think yeah thinking about maybe just focusing on gbs for a minute you've you've written out some really helpful pointers to the diagnosis things to think about and to look for specifically when you're thinking about gbs which of course we don't want to miss in terms of you know prognosticating and, and making sure that that you know we give people an opportunity to get better i suppose what are the things you'd you'd say really point towards a diagnosis of gbs and what are the things that maybe make you think again you've mentioned a few of them already yeah so with gbs i think it's often a case that someone might have a bit of back pain uh, or a pulled muscle and it's not common but sometimes those patients start their journey with an orthopedic kind of referral or workup I think the other thing about Guillain-Barre is that it's one of those situations where particularly the sensory symptoms precede the sensory signs. So patients will complain of sensory problems in their feet uh, early on and over you know, a day or so that will spread up to their mid-calves and then into their fingers. But the examination finding is not sort of dramatically abnormal. They might have a little bit of vibration sense loss distally. So I think you, you, sensory symptoms are really important to, to, to take seriously, particularly in the context of back pain or sort of uh, a pulled muscle type symptomatology in terms of early Guillain-Barre. And then I think they get uh, weakness and it's usually the legs before the arms, as you know, and it, it tends to be, it's, it's strikingly common for the weakness to be proximal. So, it, you know, think about a, a distal axonal neuropathy causing distal weakness but often with Guillain-Barre, the, the weakness is proximal, uh, perhaps reflecting nerve root conduction block, you know, proximally in the limbs. Mm. The reflexes, there's this, I think in my view, they're, they're often lost really or lost progressively over a few days. That's almost diagnostic, really. I know that they can be preserved at times. And then 
most patients, half of patients have gone to develop facial weakness and so on, uh, or bulbar problems and, and dysautonomia. But the, the red flags, I think, are if someone's got a fever, you know, that's very odd. If there's a, if there's a history of drug use, I'm more and more suspicious, particularly in young people, of things like nitrous oxide. The weakness should be symmetrical, so it's very unusual to get asymmetric weakness. And I've been caught out with spinal cord or cord requina pathology uh, with, you know, as in retrospect, is it with asymmetry is a major kind of um, red flag there. Mm-hmm. Early sphincter involvement, a sensory level, of course, are, yes. are atypical. And then if you've got, as we were saying earlier, your respiratory involvement should reflect your limb muscle weakness. So they sort of are correlated. And I think that um, sometimes it's worth saying that an early LP or an early nerve conduction test can be pretty unremarkable in the first week or so. And it's worth, you know, if you think it could be Guillain-Barré, it's probably worth repeating those tests in the second week when they're much more likely to be abnormal. You know, the protein is usually abnormal in week two, I think 80 to 90%, whereas in week one, it's, you know, the minority of cases will have a race protein. So don't go, don't be misled by reassuring early investigations. It's worth perhaps repeating them. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, our ITU colleagues are often very keen to get um, get investigated or, or very lucky that they get investigations done quickly. So perhaps encouraging them to wait a little before they request those tests. Obviously not if we're concerned about a myelopathy, but if we're thinking about Guillain-Barre. No, I think that's a very good point. And it's the, the mindset in ICU, understandably, is often really geared up to wanting to do any do something most days, which is understandable. But as you say, sometimes delaying can can be can be more helpful. I I agree. Yeah, yeah. Just before we finish, GBS, anything that we should be uh, reminding our colleagues to think about with with those patients with sort of cardiac or, or autonomic or, or other complications that are associated. Yeah, the dysautonomia I think is is a a real worry, um, particularly patients who have so called vagal spells during, you know, oropharyngeal toileting and so on. So I think if there's any concern about tachyarrhythmia or bradycardia, I tend to ask for a cardiology review in that, in those situations. The intensive care colleagues seem to be very good at actually treating uh, blood pressure, at least um, the ICU that, that I, we go to uh, locally. They're very good at managing those patients. But I think um, it's rare to get a, a really significant cardiac problem, but, but uh, it does happen. And in that case, I tend to defer to to my uh, cardiology experts, yeah. Now, you mention several less common conditions. You've, you've brought up a few of them, thinking about botulism in, in drug users and other conditions. There's a lot of other conditions that you mentioned in the paper. And, and again, I'd really encourage people to, to download that and have a proper look. Maybe you could pick your top two or three or, or mention ones that you think we should be able to be, to be savvy to, things that we should check in the history or maybe things that, that give us a clue that, that are top ones that you think might not be thought about. Yeah, I can only speak really from my own experience. And, you know, we bear the scars of our sort of encounters, I think. Um, the ones that, that I've seen quite recently was, was one of these neurofacian antibody problems that look like Guillain-Barre. So these are these um, nodal and paranodal antibodies 
that I think there's there's been a publication about in practical neurology, um, and they can resemble CIDP, but occasionally they can present very much more abruptly with a problem that looks like Guillain-Barre, and the, they're pretty uh, subacute, acute onset weakness. They have cranial nerve problems, autonomic problems, respiratory problems. I think the clues can be that they tend to normally a Guillain barrier will reach an adir with within about a week to 10 days but in these patients they just have a little bit of a slower progressive natural history uh, and they just get steadily worse and worse and don't respond to immunoglobulins and some of them are have a nephrotic syndrome so they might have protein urea and that might be a clue um, but the, the, the important thing is to send off those antibodies. If you've got a bad Guillain-Barre, it's a progressive Guillain-Barre that's, you know, just getting worse and worse and not responding to anything because they can respond to rituximab. So I think it's a really important diagnosis to consider. There can be some neurophysiological clues. If you have a patient who just has conduction block uh, on their motor nerve conduction as opposed to um, what's called the dispersion, uh, then that, that, that can be a clue to these uh, nodal or paranodal problems. But I think the main message is to consider it in a, in a bad Guillain-Barre and have a low threshold for sending off because the management is so different. I think the other couple of other conditions, one would be the musk form of myasthenia. And I have to confess, I, I haven't seen a great deal of that except this one or two people who've had a very abrupt fascia bulba weakness uh, presenting, you know, really in extremis um, with very well-preserved strength in their limbs and uh, needing fairly prompt admission to intensive care. And they tend to have uh, less in the way of positive neurophysiological findings in terms of repetitive stimulation and they tend to have more in the way of neck extension weakness. So they tend to present with a, a head drop, which is a little bit different from the uh, myasthenics with acetylcholine receptor antibodies. And crucially, in the case that we had, giving a small dose of paridostigmine or mestinon uh, led to really severe cholinergic uh, muscarinic problems. So uh, the patient... Be, really had a lot of salivation, tremendous fasciculation, awful kind of gastrointestinal upset and became quite bradycardic. And those patients, they look like they've got myasthenia, but they they differ in the ways that I've just outlined. And they tend to respond uh, better to uh, rituximab again, plasma exchange as opposed to immunoglobulin. And they tend to have this peculiar sensitivity to paridostigmine. So that's perhaps another one that I'd sort of highlight. The other one that I saw as a as a, a houseman sort of was quite a formative experience was a, a porphyria. And porphyria, you know, it's it's often a difficult diagnosis to think of because they, they have so many symptoms and problems that might have stretched out over time and it's difficult to actually put it together. So the particular patient we had was someone who was thought to have a urinary tract infection but didn't have a fever, and then they're, and they were treated for a urinary tract infection, and their abdominal pain became much worse. And then they became extraordinarily anxious and ended up having a laparotomy and then had a seizure after their surgery. 
and developed very severe myalgia. And so, you know, I think the take-home message there, abdominal pain, sympathomimetic kind of things like tachycardia, even press and hypertension, and then seizures in about 10% of cases. And the weakness tends to occur after that, tends to be sometimes proximal, arms and legs can be uh, affected, but it doesn't tend to be symmetrical. And the myalgia is particularly uh, striking, and it's often mistaken as a myositis. And this very odd reflex pattern that can mean the patient is essentially areflexic except for ankle jerks, which tend to be preserved. And it was only on the intensive care unit as a as a kind of, I was watching from the sidelines as the neurologist persuaded us all that actually there was a unifying diagnosis here and the patient didn't just have a post-operative seizure or post-operative myalgia. There was actually some some underlying condition. So it was a formative experience for me watching that as a houseman. So I'm always on the lookout for porphyria. That, perhaps that, yeah, that's the other one I'd mention. Yeah, that's fantastic. As you say, it all sounds so obvious when it's spelled out in front of you, but it's thinking about some of these things um, that are just not in our immediate repertoire. No, that's right. And it, it, they're often dispersed through the notes. You know, it, it's kind of, there was an omission a month ago with abdominal pain or, mm. you know, you really need to sort of try and drag it all mm. together. Yeah. That's our joy though, isn't it? That's neurology. That's neurological joy. What about um, just a few non-neurological conditions we should be aware of? So you mentioned several specific electrolyte disturbances and, and sepsis particularly. Can these be enough to cause such profound weakness? And what should we make sure that we take a look for? Yeah, I think this is a real trap. I mean, I'm sure most people would say they've been caught out somehow, with particularly with electrolytes. And a low potassium uh, will cause um, an areflexive flaccid tetraparesis, essentially. And it'll do so very quickly, and it can really look like Guillain-Barré. Um, and it can be for many reasons. It doesn't have to be one of these periodic paralyses. It could be any, through uh, an endocrine problem or a drug-related problem. Any cause that lowers your potassium uh, c- can present in that fashion. Magnesium can, if it's high, can sort of resemble a myasthenic problem. So my, my um, magnesium tends to compete with calcium presynaptically, so you get less in the way of acetylcholine uh, release at the neuromuscular junction, so it can look a bit like myasthenia, and a low phosphate. Uh, so those are the three electrolytes that can really catch you out. And a phosphate, of course, can be low in intensive care if you're giving some fee to someone and they're, you know, they've been uh, starved for a period of time beforehand. You can get these sort of swings in their electrolytes and phosphate uh, which could potentially contribute to weakness. I think sepsis is, you know, this systemic inflammatory response syndrome is is really intriguing. It's something as a neurologist I don't feel 100% comfortable with. I, you know, really defer to my intensive care colleagues for this. But I do know that essentially you've got this uncontrolled pro-inflammatory problem that can affect other organs. So you might get a transaminitis in the liver or coagulopathy uh, in the blood uh, or a tachyarrhythmia or slightly raised troponin level, for example, and certainly a delirium. And I, I think that the nerve and muscle um, perhaps 
I'm perhaps I'm slightly wrong here, but I tend to re- tend to view it as another organ that's failing in that situation. So really, it's systemic inflammatory response syndrome is a major risk factor for um, the so-called ICU acquired weakness. So we, you know, if if you've got um, someone who's got who's very septic, very unwell, high lactate, uh, and all their parameters are pointing to a really uh, severe sepsis or severe illness, then that's a risk factor for this so-called ICU-acquired weakness. And that perhaps we should view that as another organ that's failing in, in that condition. And it can happen quite early on. It doesn't have to be a long-standing problem. It can happen within a few days of, of, that, uh, of the patient experiencing that problem. Just before we come to the um, to the sort of weakness that develops whilst they're in intensive care, I wondered if we could just talk briefly about you mentioned underlying conditions that can be sort of unmasked from from other disease, so p- perhaps a superimposed infection or something, but conditions that may have been asymptomatic prior to to hospital admission. Um, and there's a fantastic table uh, in the paper which has a, a whole long list of myopathies and things like that. But I just wondered if there were any particular conditions that you thought it was important to highlight that people should should think about whether it was there before. Yeah, so they're in, an interesting group. I think actually that after myasthenia and Guillain-Barre, this group as a whole are the third most common reason that you know weakness can lead to intensive care. And as we've mentioned, you know, speaking to the family is so important, trying to establish whether the weakness actually subtly was there before hospital admission and it's decompensated for some for some reason. And and these patients are in a knife edge. So, you know, they've got they're compensated, but they've got respiratory muscle weakness. And it doesn't take very much to push them over onto the edge. You know, it can be something as trivial as a fever or being constipated. The, the, the common conditions that I think we see would, the first one would be motor neurone disease, really. And these patients can present just with respiratory muscle weakness. They might present to a respiratory physician and, you know, they just have that isolated problem. But I think more commonly, there are some clues when we see those patients. Um, there's the telltale signs of upper and lower motor neurone signs in their limbs it's important to look at the tongue you know is the tongue wasted is it is it fasciculating and wasting is very important i mean you might see wasting in terms of a disproportionate wasting of the the first dorsal interosseous for example the so-called split hand and really important to do reflexes in in that context and particularly facial reflexes so you know a, a jaw jerk or a uh, just tapping the mouth, uh, a brisk myotactic facial reflex in the context of someone who's got some fasciculation in their tongue really is a powerful pointer to motor neurone disease. And actually, I think it's very sadly not un- not uncommon to encounter that sort of situation just before intensive care admission or during intensive care admission. It's a very difficult, very difficult clinical problem. The other, The other two, I think, would be myotonic dystrophy, and, you know, that that condition can come at you in so many different ways. Uh, we had a patient recently who'd had recurrent jaw dislocations over a period of a few years and then had a cholecystectomy 
and decompensated after their surgery and were in intensive care. And, you know, there you're looking for uh, the temporal wasting. The males, tend, men ha- tend to have frontal balding, ptosis, and they have wasting. And they're, they're, it's, it's really important to say that the myotonic dystrophy patients, the weakness is distal, so it's their hand grip strength and it's ankle dorsiflexion flexion that's weak, so it's foot drop and poor hand grip. And, of course, it's really important to try and remember to do to do a percussion of the thene remnants looking for percussion myotonia, which is the most sensitive test for myotonia. So you get this contraction and then the exaggerated contraction and then a kind of a very slow relaxation of the muscle. And then the third one that we will, that occasionally I've seen, we, occasionally we do see is uh, acid maltase deficiency. So this is a lysosomal enzyme muscle disorder. And those patients can get um, weakness, but they can particularly affect the respiratory muscles, even when they're still ambulant. But when, when you examine them, they'll have hip flexion, particularly hip flexion weakness. It's almost invariably present. Their hip abductors and adductors will be weak as well, but it's particularly hip flexion. And they'll have this wasting of their paraspinal muscles. So if you can look at the paraspinal muscles, which is difficult in intensive care, you'll find them very wasted. And EMG is really helpful for looking for myotonic discharges, obviously in myotonic dystrophy, but also in acid maltase deficiency. And particularly those paraspinal muscles are very useful electrophysiologically to examine. So I think there are lots and lots of conditions that can do this, but motor neuron disease and myotonic dystrophy, I think, are the two we don't commonly encounter, but we do see it not infrequently. And the acid maltase, I think, is the, the third one, just to perhaps be aware of that it is likely that you will encounter at some stage, I think. That's fantastic. That's that's just so practically helpful. Just before we sort of round up, I, I wanted to talk briefly about weakness that's acquired on the intensive care unit, and you mentioned this already. So I wondered if you could just start by defining for us what critical illness neuropathy and critical illness myopathy are, what we mean, and, and just talk us through whether they're a sort of spectrum of the same disease or, or whether they're really very distinct entities. Yeah, I think that's really perceptive, Amy. I, I agree with you. I think it is a spectrum, and I think on the one hand you could define it as an acquired weakness of the nerve and muscle that you know happens during intensive care admission, which is rather um, a silly way of defining it, but nonetheless you could do that. But I think it's much more subtle than that, and I think it's a it's a spectrum of disorder, and it's a spectrum because sometimes it's the muscle that's affected, sometimes it's the nerve. It's more often the muscle, actually. Two-thirds of cases are muscle, and the remainder tend to be a combination of nerve and muscle and a minority of nerve. The pathophysiology is interesting and seems to change with time. So it seems to be a dynamic process. Early on, you might get problem with sodium channels, and then later on, you get sort of more in terms of protein breakdown and so on. The histology is variable. So the histology can be normal very early, uh, perhaps reflecting the sodium channel problem that uh, heralds the problem early on. Uh, You can have myosin loss on a muscle biopsy. You can have necrotic changes on muscle biopsy. And you can have type 2 fiber atrophy on muscle biopsy. So the histology is variable. The pathophysiology is variable. 
And certainly the electrophysiology is variable. You know, it will depend upon whether it's a nerve or muscle problem. So it is a spectrum of a disorder and it's common, roughly about a third of patients, depending on what, what sort of population you're looking at in intensive care and when you're looking at them, will develop it. And it tends to be surprisingly early. So, you know, within a few days of admission, you can sometimes find evidence of it, uh, perhaps reflecting this early ion channel problem, this acquired channelopathy. It's a really important condition because it affects mortality early on, uh, independently of being sick for other reasons in intensive care. And it has long-term mortality and morbidity associated with it. And unfortunately, we still can't treat it, although we do know ways of preventing it. Uh, we know that treating hyperglycemia, trying to avoid sedation, uh, getting the person passively moving and uh, using their muscles as quickly as possible, and strangely avoiding nutrition within the first week of arrival in intensive care are ways in which we can tend to minimise the risk of it developing. But as yet, we still don't have a treatment, unfortunately. And, and as I say, I think it might be perhaps viewed as another organ that's failing in these critically ill patients. And it, it's been known about for many years. You know, it was first described over 100 years ago, but it's only come back really um, in the 1970s with McFarlane finding it in in muscle in patients who had asthma. And then in the mid-1980s, there was this appreciation of, it, of a critical illness neuropathy. And it, it's, it's going to become more of a problem as patients are surviving better in intensive care through you know, awful illnesses, it, it, it's a real, a real problem. So we need, need more treatment, need more research into it. Yeah. And again, I, I'm, we don't have time to dive into the sort of differentiating uh, the neuropathy and the myopathy from um, with, with the neurophysiology, but just again, to highlight a really useful table to refer to if you're, if you're looking at some, some nerve conduction studies and want some help interpreting those. I think we are probably getting tight for time. Was there anything additional that you wanted to add before we start to round up? The only thing I'd say is that I, I stole um, a sort of an epithet from Professor Charles Warlow. He, he did an editorial on an earlier version mm -hmm. of this that Robin Howard wrote in from Queen Square. And it, it was basically along the lines of saying the intensive care unit, we should care more and less intensity. And I think that's a kind of good way of looking at it neurologically. You know, we need to take our time going through the history and examination and not get all caught up in the various um, machinery and the, the terminology and so on. So I, I think that's perhaps a, a good, and, I, and I, in the paper, I didn't attribute it and I should have done. So I'm, I, I'm trying to apologise, I suppose, as well. <laughs> well, I think I think you're right. I think that is an important message and um, perhaps not just for intensive care, but for all of our patients. But um, highlighting again our um, our role and including the, the care of our patients in that. 
that's been really, really phenomenal. I could do a whole part two on the bits that we haven't covered, but thank you. That's just that's just been really wonderful. And I I just know that that loads of people will benefit, trainees and and consultants, but also loads of our patients from the podcast we've done today. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot once more, if I may, and ask for for three things. Actually, I was going to give you two, but your top test test result that you want to know, uh, your top tip for examination and your top tip to go away for? Goodness me. I've been caught out so many times by electrolytes that I think you, you've got to know the potassium before you do anything else. I think that's really important. Examination. I think the distribution of weakness is is really helpful in, in differentiating between many of these conditions. You know, is it symmetrical? Is it asymmetrical? Is it legs more than arms and that sort of thing? And I, I think care rather than intensity, I'd put it that way, yeah. That's wonderful. That's a really great way to end. So that's just been the most fantastic hour or so uh, of, of chat. I'm just going to remind listeners quickly that you can get older podcasts uh, that you might have missed just by searching PM Podcasts and you can subscribe to get these regularly. Um, and just to ask all those listeners who like the show or maybe think there are ways that we can do it better to leave us a review on the iTunes page because we'd really love to have your, your feedback and to, to keep improving these. So do let us know your thoughts. Thank you to everyone for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's podcast as much as I did. Um, and particular thanks to our, our really exceptional guest, Dr. John Walters. Thank you, John. Thank you.